We're marching along in our series on the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we are now to Luke chapter 20, verse 27 through 40. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dare to ask him any question. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your sometimes strange and mysterious and even odd word which comes into our lives and reorders the way we think about things. So God, we pray that you would send your spirit uh, to tend to this part of your word this morning, that we might benefit from it and that we might be made new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Many of you may be too young to remember this, um, but thank God for YouTube. You can go look this up afterwards. But in 1984, President Ronald Reagan was up against former Vice President Walter Mondale in the presidential race. And at the time, President Reagan was the oldest president in U.S. history. He was 73 years old, I believe. And in their first debate... Reagan seemed off. He would lose track of what he was saying, and there would be these awkward pauses. And the press and the media, and of course his political opponents, jumped all over this, raising questions about his age and his mental fitness for office, which, by the way, not much has changed, has it, right? (laughs) So in their second debate, political correspondent Henry Truitt raised this issue. And he said, Mr. President, you're the oldest president in U.S. history. Some of your staff said that you were very tired after your last debate with Mr. Mondale. And then Mr. Truett went on to say, I recall that President Kennedy had to work for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, Mr. President, is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to do the same in such circumstances. Ronald Reagan replied quickly, not at all, Mr. Truett. And I want you to know that I will not make age an issue in this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. (laughs) 
It brought the house down. Mr. Truitt could hardly gather himself, and even Walter Mondale burst out in laughter. Go watch this on YouTube today. It is just this wonderful moment. It's a mic drop moment because what Reagan did is he flipped the script. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is this is what Jesus is doing throughout chapter 20 of the Gospel of Luke. He's entered into the temple and he's in conflict with the chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the elders. And they keep coming at him and Jesus keeps flipping the script. He does these brilliant moves that actually takes their their energy and their opposition and he turns it back against them. Chapter 20 is this whole series of conflicts where they're picking at Jesus and he's turning the tables on them. They've challenged his authority. Uh, What right do you have to come into the temple and rearrange things? And uh, he brought up the whole question about John that sort of left them in a pickle. And then as we saw last week, he brings up, they bring up this issue about taxes. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And they think they've got him. That either way, he's going to be in their trap, no matter how he answers. But of course, he flips the script. And this morning, we see a very similar thing happening too. But this time, the subject is resurrection, which means the subject is also about death. Now, death is a very sobering topic. Right? We can talk about it. Um, at a distance or with some sort of detached curiosity until it lands in our lap where we experience the death of a loved one like some of you have recently or you face your own mortality because you discover that you have cancer and throughout history in every culture and pretty much every time people have asked the question will we live again on the other side of death it's that question that just won't go away. And what Jesus does is he engages this question that is brought to him and takes us from the topic of death and resurrection right to the heart of God. Now, I'll be honest, this isn't an easy passage to follow. In fact, it's it's quite a strange story to modern ears, but it's the kind of exchange that would have been familiar and understandable to ancient ones. And I think this is actually an important note for us uh, to take to heart, is that sometimes with a little bit of effort, uh, you discover that the strange stories are actually the ones that you need to hear the most, because they have a whole lot to say to us. So here's the, here's the scene. A certain group of men from the Sadducees party come to Jesus, and they have a question for him. And it's a question revolving around the topic of death and resurrection. But Luke tells us something important. He tells us in verse 27, in case you didn't know, that the Sadducees deny that there is a resurrection. So their question is insincere. They're trying to trap Jesus. And if you don't know who the Sadducees were, uh, they were one of several subgroups within Judaism of the first century. So if you're new to the Christian faith or you're looking at the Bible for the first time, you might be hearing about the Pharisees or the Essenes or the Zealots. The Sadducees, right? These are just various groups. Early, uh, early Judaism had parties, <laughs> political parties, theological parties, you know, not parties like rah-rah parties, but, you know, like groups of people that oriented around certain beliefs. And the Sadducees were the aristocrats and sophisticates. And they loved Greek culture. They collaborated with Rome. Most of them were pretty wealthy. Many of them sat on the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council. Sometimes uh, modern scholars refer to them as the conservatives 
of the Jewish world because of their political perspective. But religiously speaking, they were more like the theological liberals. The only sure word of God in their mind were the five books of Moses, what we call the Pentateuch. The rest is just commentary. They denied the existence of angels and demons. They didn't believe in a final judgment. And this is the key point. They thought the Pharisees' belief in resurrection was rationally ridiculous. And not just that, but it wasn't taught in Scripture, or at least the trimmed-down version that they believed in. So to oversimplify, if the Pharisees were the fundamentalists of the first century, then the Sadducees were the mainline Episcopalians. Now, uh, you're like, "Ah, party foul. Well, let me just say, let me be fair here, okay? Presbyterians have been both throughout their history. So the scenario they present to Jesus to set up their question is a real doozy. And it's based on the teaching of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 6. And it's what we now call leveret marriage. Okay, it comes from the Latin levir, which means a husband's brother. Okay, and so this is about brother-in-laws. And, and this was the deal. A woman whose husband died and they had no children would marry one of the deceased man's brothers. Now that sounds very weird to your ears and mine, but it actually played a very important role in ancient society. It actually enabled them to continue the family name, but, and this is really important, it secured the safety of the woman's property and inheritance. And she was very vulnerable to losing those things in the ancient world. So here's the, the Sadducees coming, and they're saying, hey, Jesus, suppose a woman's husband dies and they have no children. So one of his brothers marries her, and then he dies, and they still don't have any children, and then another, and then another, and then another, seven times, and then she dies. Okay, Jesus, in the resurrection, whose wife will this woman be? And you can almost hear the snickers of the Sadducees coming through the text. They, make no mistake about it, they are trying to challenge the authority of Jesus. And they're testing him on his understanding of Scripture, and they want to expose him as an incompetent teacher. And this is how. They, they either want to get him to contradict Moses... And they'll say, see, he's against Moses. Or tie himself in knots trying to explain resurrection. Because this question is worded in such a way as as to make the whole idea of it sound silly. Sometimes, you know, our questions are sincere. They're really earnest. Why does God allow pain and suffering, right? Um, Why did I lose my mom at such an early age? Why did my marriage fall apart, right? Sincere questions. Sometimes our questions are very insincere. They're more like accusations. They're more like attempts to try to show things to be ridiculous. And they're not earnestly engaging at all. But here's the thing. Jesus engages both. And what we see is that Jesus says, hold up a second. You actually don't know what you're talking about. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. And in case that doesn't make sense to you, here's Jesus' point. Resurrection life will be different. Very different. There are things that belong to this present age and there are things that belong 
to that age, the coming age. And it's not like you can just draw a straight line from the one to the other, as if resurrection life is just this life only lasting longer. Resurrection life won't be exactly the same. There's going to be some big changes. And Jesus drops a couple notes. Nobody will marry or be given in marriage, verse 35. And then here's the kicker. Nobody will die, verse 36. That's pretty different and really, really hard to wrap our heads around. But Jesus is saying your premise is wrong. It's your question that is absurd, not the resurrection. And Jesus goes on, you're, you're wrong about something else. The hope of resurrection isn't missing from the scriptures. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush, says Jesus, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now, you might not think that this is the best passage to root a hope of resurrection in. Why didn't Jesus use something like Isaiah 26, 19, where it says, Your dead shall live, their bodies, corpses, shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Why didn't he go to Daniel chapter 12? Why didn't he go to any of those places in the prophets? Well, here's why. The Sadducees weren't really down with the prophets. They loved Moses. They loved Torah. So that's where Jesus went. And Moses is pretty early in the story of Israel. So what Jesus is doing is like what a brilliant literary critic uh, would do, going to an early part of a story and showing how the end was hinted at all along. And listen, there is a kind of beautiful logic to how Jesus is reasoning. God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, and he self-identifies as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am the God of Abraham. Not I was, These dudes had been dead about 500 years by the time Moses is meeting God. So if God still is their God, not was their God, then they must somehow still live. And the language God of is language used throughout the Hebrew Scriptures to describe a covenantal relationship. It's language of the covenant. God had a special covenantal relationship with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. So if you're finding this hard to follow, maybe we can put it like this. If the God of Abraham loses Abraham at death, what does this say about God? Is death stronger than him? Does death have the power to break his covenantal bond? No. God's covenant love is stronger even than death. And this, I believe, is what Jesus is really getting at here. The hope of resurrection is rooted in the character and the promises of God. God still is, not was, the God of his people, even though they die. And God makes some big, big promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to all of his people that are so dynamic, they demand a resurrection. Think about it like this. God made some big promises to Abraham, for example, that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And Abraham never saw that because he died. But he was looking forward to it. 
And that's why the author of Hebrews writes about Abraham in chapter 11, that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, that he was longing for that new country, and that actually all of the fathers of Israel's faith were desiring a better country that is a heavenly one, and God is preparing for them a city. Do you you know what the author of Hebrews is doing there? He's using resurrection logic. God made some big promises, and he intends to keep them. And not even death is going to stop it. Every last one of them is going to come true. And for that to happen, his people will need to be raised. And as the story unfolds in the Hebrew Scriptures, you get more and more clarity. That beautiful picture in Ezekiel 37, where God is speaking life to dead bones. And they have flesh put on them. Listen, here's the thing, and this is important because it's a misunderstanding in modern Christianity. God never just promised souls life after death. He promised persons, body and soul, eternal life. Herman Vitzius was this Dutch theologian writing in the 1600s, and it's so fun to read people from other centuries and see the insights that they have in texts. I put the quote for you in the beginning of your bulletin, but reflecting on this text, he wrote that Jesus first argued that the souls of God's people survived death because God says, I am their God. I'm still their God. And then he inferred the resurrection of the body because God's covenant promises were not made with souls, but with entire persons. What are we getting at here? Here's what we're getting at. Resurrection is central to the relationship God has with his people. For his promises to all come true, there must be resurrection. Why? To undo death and to make us whole in soul and in body. And here's a little nugget for you. In resurrection, you will be different than you are now. There will be big changes, but you will still be you. Abraham will still be Abraham, Jacob will still be Jacob, Isaac will still be Isaac, and you will still be you, and we will be gods. Not gods, but God's apostrophe S, (laughs) just to be clear. Now look, so the response of the scribes was, the scribes was crickets. And then one says, teacher, you have spoken well. Now, I'm sure that they probably pulled an all-nighter trying to sort all this out. Like, man, we didn't see that coming. Like, let's get ready for the next time. But what is your response to this? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and and, and you're saying, you know, all that's great, um, but I'm not a Sadducee. And I don't really care much about the words of Moses. In fact, I'm pretty skeptical about all of this. And here's the thing. The advantage we have now and where we sit in history is to know that there is resurrection, we don't have to go to the burning bush. We can go to the empty tomb. See, a few days after this exchange with the Sadducees, Jesus would be arrested, he'd be put on trial, he'd be condemned, he would be beaten, he would be crucified, and he would be buried, just as he'd been telling his disciples all along. And then on the third day, he would rise. And when he rose, it split history in two. God has borne witness to the reality of resurrection life in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you are not yet a Christian, this is now the best place to begin your exploration. 
Because the resurrection of Jesus is the heart of the Christian faith. And the resurrection of Jesus tells us something about the heart of God. He is the God of the living. He is the God of life. Because he reigns over death. And not even death can stop his eternal covenant love. What's it going to be like? Like, How do we even imagine it? You know, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot. And Jesus certainly doesn't say a lot here. But some of you might be looking at this and saying, but I won't be married or have children? Like, that, that's, that's kind of disappointing. But here's the thing. Resurrection life will be more, not less, than the goodness we find in this life. There's going to be more intimacy, more connection, more joy than we could possibly imagine. You will not be deprived of anything. Every good thing we enjoy now will come to full maturation, and it will be glorious. And so maybe to put a real focus on it, whatever goodness and joy you experience in your marriage or your singleness, by the way, will find its perfection and its fulfillment in the marriage supper of the Lamb. What all this was pointing to in the first place. And whatever heartache and pain that you experience in your loneliness, your singleness, your divorce, your presently messed up marriage, don't know if it can ever be fixed. All that will be gone forever gone for good. You will be you, but life will be different. There will be more joy. There will be more intimacy. There'll be more embrace. There'll be more wholeness than you can possibly conceive. No one who dies in union with Christ will be deprived of of anything. In the resurrection, marriage as we know it is gone, but it's found its fulfillment. Death is gone. Bodies are new, but I'm still me. You are still you, and we still belong to God. You know, at the end of the Bible, we get these images about resurrection life. And that's really what we're left with. It's not grand descriptions or floor plans, but like images meant to overwhelm our imagination in Revelation 21 and 22. It's described as a new heavens and a new earth, by which it means renewed, all things made new. We're told about a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven like a bride coming down the aisle to meet her groom, that the river of the water of life flows through the city from which the thirsty drink. And then on both sides of the river is the tree of life, an image from the Garden of Eden. And this tree of life bears 12 kinds of fruit. It's a magical tree, right? And its leaves, we are told, are for the healing of the nations. How comprehensive is this? The curse is no more. We will see his face. He will be our light. We will reign with him forever and ever. And the invitation is the spirit and the bride say, come, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires the water of life come and drink without price. Resurrection is a transformation. Apostle Paul later compares it to our our present bodies to, to a seed awaiting its transformation into a tree. Sown perishable, raised imperishable. New bodies appropriate to the new world we inhabit. Now look, I, I don't think that needs to be applied. I think that needs to be adored and praised. But some of you might be saying, you know, so what? So what? If this is true, what difference does it make in my life now? And here's the thing. If this is who God is, if this is what he promises... Is he not worth trusting? Now, you and I are, every one of us, are always making sacrifices for some imagined future we are longing for. 
We can't, we can't get out of that. Getting tenure, raising our children, saving enough for retirement, it's all predicated on some future that we are hoping for and longing for. But of course, we discover as we move through life that that future is outside of our control. The tenured people still get canceled. The kids don't always cooperate with how you raise them. That enough for retirement now doesn't always end up being enough for retirement later. And by the way, these futures, even if undisturbed, often leave people very empty and unsatisfied. But worst of all, death comes for us all. Resurrection life is the only sure thing. Everybody needs hope that death isn't the end, that sad things can come untrue, that wrong things can be made right. Resurrection life is a sure thing because it is rooted in the character and the promises of God and it is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. It's more than you could ask or imagine and it's worth devoting your life to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, again um, for just the way that your word, even in its perceived weirdness, uh, speaks so meaningfully to our lives. And we pray that by your spirit, um, you would work your word like seed in our hearts, that it might bear good fruit. And Lord, we thank you for the great hope of resurrection life. Lord, our bodies decay with death, and uh, our life is disturbed by death's presence. Uh, But you have conquered death. Because you, Lord Jesus, conquered sin. And so we pray that we would live in the freedom of that, the joy of that, the excitement of that. And it would animate us to be your people who are willing to sacrifice for that future. And to bear witness to that kingdom and that life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.